everybody. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Lights Out Podcast. I'm your host, Josh. As always, I'm joined in the studio by my producer, Joel. And today we are covering another serial killer, Joel Rifkin, the Ripper of New York City. In the early 1990s, oil drums floated along New York City's waterways. Dismembered bodies filled their insides and legs stuck out of their lids as local fishermen watched the drums slowly roll down the creek. Crime riddled the city was as Joel Rifkin hid in plain sight. He snatched desperate sex workers off the street and mutilated their corpses, one after the next. But he was never worried about getting caught. When a body turned up, police wrote off the death as just another crack addict. Overdose. Joel Rifkin is definitely one of the most brutal and savage serial killers that I think we have ever covered. So just for a warning, this episode is going to be graphic and maybe triggering for some. But before we get into the episode, I just want to remind everybody, make sure to support the show by following us on Spotify. Make sure you're subscribed on YouTube as well. We'd really appreciate it. It does really help us out. It's an easy and free way to support the show. Also, follow us on Instagram and Twitter, as well as TikTok at Lights Out Cast. We post on there a lot with all sorts of interesting things. So Yeah, absolutely. We post a lot of different clips and highlights from the different shows, as well as some other things on there as well. And also, you can follow Joel and I personally as well at Milehire Josh and Milehire Joel. Pretty easy. <laughs> it is. But this episode of Lights Out is brought to you by Care of Stamps.com and Every Plate. But let's go ahead and jump into the early years of Joel Rifkin. So, Joel Rifkin was born on January 20th, 1959, in New York City. His parents were both young college students at the time, and his father was an Army veteran. But they soon realized that they couldn't take care of him. So they actually put Joel up for adoption. And on February 14, 1959, when he was only three weeks old, Joel was adopted by a middle-class couple living on Long Island. His new parents were named Bernard and Jean Rifkin. They ended up adopting another daughter a few years later, and they moved to East Meadow, New York, where they settled down. This is where Joel lived for most of his life. While growing up, his parents sent him to school, but he didn't do well at all. He had several learning disabilities that he struggled with throughout the years. Although he had an IQ of 128, his severe dyslexia made it hard for him to succeed in school. And it was also hard for him to make friends because he was painfully shy and socially awkward. He was often an easy target for bullies, which made going to school a miserable experience. And despite struggling in school, he eventually graduated from East Meadow High School in 1977. Over the years, he slowly developed an interest in horticulture and photojournalism. And he went on to take college classes at several different community colleges and universities. He even became the photographer for the school's newspaper at State University of New York. But he ended up dropping out just before he got a degree. To make some money, he picked up a few odd jobs along the way. And although he was older now, Joel still struggled with his social problems. He hardly knew how to talk to people and he was still painfully shy. He didn't know how to ask women out. So in his spare time, he began picking up prostitutes. He realized it was one of the only ways he could form a social connection with someone. But his habit soon became an addiction, and he spent most of the money he made on picking up prostitutes in Manhattan's Lower East Side. During the 1980s, this was a neighborhood where prostitutes and drugs could be found on any street corner. And whenever Joel had some free time, he would drive down to the Lower East Side and pick up a lady to spend the night with him. He had built up his routine over the years, but his life quickly changed when Joel was 27. His father, Bernard, was diagnosed with prostate cancer, and two months after his diagnosis, his father committed suicide by overdosing on medication. This devastated Joel, to say the least. This was the first significant loss in his life, and it stuck with him forever. According to friends and family, Joel delivered a moving eulogy at his father's funeral, and afterward he fell into a dark depression that would only worsen over time. To cope with his depression, Joel continued seeking out prostitutes almost every night. Through the years, he had picked up hundreds of prostitutes, and in August of 1987, he made the mistake of soliciting sex from an undercover police officer, and she arrested him. Luckily for him, he was let go with a small fine to pay, and instead of scaring Joel away from the Lower East Side, his search for lust became even more devious. Night after night, he returned to the neighborhood and picked up prostitutes. After a small change of heart, he decided to go back to school at the State College of Technology in Farmingdale, New York. 
he enrolled in a two-year horticulture program. And although he usually struggled with academics, he made straight A's for the first time in his life. In fact, two semesters in a row. He did so well in the program that they actually gave him an internship at the Planting Fields Arboretum in Oyster Bay, New York. It seemed like his direction in life was finally turning around. And on top of his success at school, he developed a crush on one of the other interns. Her name is unknown, but he shadowed her during the first several months of working there. And the more time he spent with her, the more he developed feelings for her. But there was just one major problem. Joel was still extremely shy and socially awkward. He had no idea how to ask her out, so he built an elaborate fantasy in his head. Even though she didn't feel the same way about him, Joel was completely lost in his fantasy crush. But as time passed, his fantasy crumbled. He didn't have the courage to tell her how he felt. And with all those feelings, emotions, and fantasies, it was finally too much. His feelings turned into anger and humiliation. His failure with women was too much. And he was ready to explode. In the back of his mind, he began having thoughts of violence and murder. Whenever he thought of a potential romance, gruesome thoughts were right around the corner. Rage began to consume him until he could only think of violence against women. And in March of 1989, his emotions finally detonated. One week, his mother left town for vacation and Joel was left alone in the family house in East Meadow. He knew that now was the perfect time to release his rage. So he left the house one night around 10 o'clock p.m. and he cruised down to Manhattan's East Village. And that's where he found a young woman only known as Susie, working the streets. After he rolled down his window to talk to her, she promised she would have sex with him, but only if he stopped at a few places to purchase crack before going back to Long Island. Joel agreed. And when they got back to the family house, they headed into the living room where they had sex. After they finished, Susie begged Joel to take her out to find more drugs. And right as she asked him, he lost all control. Joel blew up with rage in the living room, and he grabbed a souvenir howitzer artillery shell from the mantle. Gripping it tightly in his hand, he smashed it over her head. A loud crack rang out as she fell to the ground, and he kept beating her over and over again. Blood flew across the family living room, and he only stopped when he got tired. As he stood up and looked down at her, he could see that Susie was still alive. So he reached down to try and move her, but she snapped at him. Her teeth clenched down on one of Joel's fingers, and she almost bit it off clean. But he managed to free his hand from her mouth just before she did. And this only enraged Joel even more. He wrapped his hands around her neck and squeezed as hard as he could, and he watched the life slowly drain out of her until he was sure she was dead. He then shoved her body into a large trash bag and he cleaned up any signs of blood in the living room. Exhausted, he lay down on the couch and casually slept for a few hours, like nothing had happened. After waking up, he dragged Susie down to the basement, pulled her body out of the bag and lifted her up onto the washer and dryer. He then grabbed an exacto knife from the basement workshop and cut into her flesh. He kept cutting and sawing until her body was in several pieces. He didn't want her to be identified, so he also cut off her fingertips and yanked her teeth out with pliers. And for good measure, he shoved her head into old paint. As her body sprawled across the table in several bloody pieces, he placed each body part into separate garbage bags and then stuffed them into the back of his mother's car. He then drove across the state line to New Jersey where he dropped the head and legs in the woods near Hopewell. From there, he went back to Manhattan and threw the arms and torso into the East River. And as he discarded each part, all he could think of was killing again. Murdering Susie had been the biggest release of his life. And he realized how easy it was to trap and kill a prostitute. He thought his murder was foolproof and no one would ever find her but he had been careless. On March 5th, 1989, a few members of the Hopewell Valley Golf Club were out playing around a golf near the woods. When one of the golfers accidentally sliced their shot into the woods near the seventh green, it was an awful shot, and it went deep into the woods after bouncing off a few tree trunks. As the golfer stumbled into the woods to look for their ball, they spotted a curious paint can on the ground. Long strands of bloody hair came out of the top, and when the golfer stopped a bit closer, they noticed it was a human head shoved into the can. The golfer then called the police, and the police rushed to the scene. 
and after collecting the various trash bags filled with body parts, they sent it to their labs, hoping to identify the victim. After putting together several artist sketches of the victim, they checked them against a list of 700 missing women. And unfortunately, they never identified Susie. But after they did a blood test, they learned that the victim was HIV positive. And when this information was released to the public, Joel quickly sank into a panic attack. Not only had he had sex with Susie, but he dismembered her body and her blood had gotten all over him. This scared him so much that he didn't kill again for another year. Instead, he waited until around 14 months later, in late 1990, when he found his next victim. His mother had gone out of town again, and the urge to kill consumed him, so he repeated his process. As he strolled the streets of Lower East Side, he saw a woman who looked like Madonna. She had blonde hair and dark red lipstick, and when he pulled over his car, he asked her for her name, and she told him it was Julie Blackbird. They struck up a deal to have sex, and Joel drove her back to his mother's house. After sex, she ended up staying the night, and around 9 a.m. the next morning, Joel looked over at Julie and felt the old familiar rage building up inside of him. And just before Julie was about to leave, Joel snapped off a table leg from a nearby table and began beating Julie with it. He swung the wooden table leg at her over and over until she could no longer fight back. While she was weak, he grabbed her by the neck and choked the last bit of life out of her. Inspired by Ted Bundy, he looked down at the dead body and considered raping her, but the thought of it repulsed him. That was where he drew the line. After shaking off the thought, he still had to get rid of the body, and he made sure not to mess things up like last time. So he went out and bought a large bag of cement and a mortar pan. And after dismembering her body, he placed Julie's head, arms, and legs into separate buckets before pouring concrete inside of them. He then took her torso and placed it in a milk crate and covered it in cement. After letting the cement dry, he then drove it out to the East River, where he dropped her body parts into a Brooklyn barge canal. The cemented body parts quickly sank to the bottom, where they were never seen again. The only thing left of Julie Blackbird was her diary that Joel stashed in his bedroom like a trophy. He also kept the table leg that he beat her with. He figured it was such a good weapon he might use it again. As days passed, he cleaned up the house and watched the news, hoping they didn't find a body. And when he realized he was in the clear, he began realizing that murder was too easy. So easy, in fact, that he couldn't wait to kill again. And he told himself he would try to kill as many women as possible. And over the next several years, the thrill of murder was all Joel could think about. By 1991, Joel had become completely consumed with murder and violence. On the side, he started his own landscaping company in April of 1991, and he rented a small space connected to a local nursery where he stored his equipment. And as months passed by, he struggled to keep his customers, and by the end of the summer, he had fallen behind on rent. He was a decent landscaper, but most of his time was spent daydreaming about violence and murder. His landscape company was on the verge of failing, so he decided to use a small rented space to store dead bodies instead. His true passion was killing. And on July 13, 1991, he found his next victim. He picked up a 31-year-old addict named Barbara Jacobs, and just like his previous victims, he took her back to his mother's house for sex. And after she fell asleep, Joel snuck over to a cabinet where he pulled out the old table leg he had used to beat his last victim. He walked back over to Barbara where he watched her sleep. As she rested peacefully in bed, he raised the table leg over his head and swung it straight down. It hit Barbara with a loud whack, and he continued beating her with the table leg until she was black and blue. When she was too weak to defend herself, Joel straddled her and finished her off by strangulation. As he thought about how he would get rid of the body, he had grown tired of dismembering the corpses. It was a lot of work, and it was messy. So instead, he wrapped her in plastic, folded her into a cardboard box, and dumped her into the back of his mother's pickup truck. From there, he drove to the Hudson River and dropped her into the water, upstream from the nearby cement plant. Only four hours passed before firefighters found her body during a training exercise near the river, but this time, Joel didn't even care. He was so confident that the police couldn't tie the murder back to him, that he wasn't worried at all. And he was right. The police coroner blamed her death on a drug overdose and the investigation was closed. Again, he got away with murder, 
So Joel just kept on searching the streets of New York for his next victims. On the night of September 1st, 1991, Joel drove through Queens, where he found Mary Ellen DeLuca on Jamaica Avenue. She was a 22-year-old island native, and she was looking for her next fix. After picking her up, Joel drove around until sunrise. They stopped at several different locations to pick up crack, and Joel ended up shelling out $150 that night. In the early morning, they wound up at a cheap motel. As Mary rifled through her packets of drugs, she complained that they didn't get enough. But Joel didn't care. He then coerced her into having sex with him. Mary rushed through it and complained the entire time. Until Joel became so annoyed with her that he burst out and asked her if she wanted to die. Supposedly, Mary immediately said yes. They looked each other in the eyes and Joel was a bit surprised by her response. But he put his hands around her neck and pressed her into the mattress. At first he thought she was lying about wanting to die. But as he clenched his grip around her neck, she didn't resist. She did nothing and accepted her fate. She just lied there in bed until the oxygen was cut off from her brain and she slowly died. As strange as it was, Joel was happy to kill again. But as he looked over at the clock, it was the middle of the day. He had never had to get rid of a body in broad daylight before. So he thought about how he was going to carefully transport and get rid of the body. He remembered an old Hitchcock movie called Frenzy where the murderer stuffs a body into an old trunk. So the movie inspired him to purchase a cheap steamer trunk and put Mary's body inside. He then dragged the trunk to his car and put it in the back. He then drove upstate to Orange County and left her body at a rest stop near West Point. Sometime later, Mary's mother reported her missing, but her body wasn't found until October 1st, 1991. She was found completely nude except for a bra and she had no ID on her. Her body had been rotting there for almost a month, and the decomposition was so bad that the coroner couldn't determine a cause of death. Maggots had also infested her body, and she was completely unrecognizable. She was later buried in a cemetery plot without a name. And like most of Joel's victims, they were strangers to him. He barely even knew their names. He only knew them from their first and only encounter. But on another September night, he decided to return to a prostitute he had already met before. Her name was Yun Lee, a 31-year-old Korean native. Over the months, he had grown to like Yun Lee, and she was a second prostitute that night. As Lee went to work, Joel realized he couldn't perform, which made him feel completely humiliated. And as always, this humiliation grew into rage. On impulse, he threw a punch at Yun Lee as she fell to the floor shocked. Without hesitating, he jumped on top of her and began strangling her. And just before she died, she used her last breath to whisper that he was making a mistake. When she finally died, Joel felt remorse for the first time. This was the first time he had ever killed someone he knew, and he thought he liked her too. But his remorse quickly vanished. He stashed her in a steamer trunk and dropped the body into the East River. Yun Lee was found on September 23rd floating past Randall's Island, near the mouth of the Harlem River. Her ex-husband identified the body and she was buried with her name on the headstone. After this, Joel went back to killing strangers. As for his next victim, he never bothered to ask for her name. She was only known as number six, because she was his sixth victim. He picked her up at West 46th Street in Manhattan a few days after Christmas in 1991. He paid her for oral sex and she got into his car. He then pulled into a dark alley where she unbuttoned his pants thinking he was just like any of her other clients. But as she leaned her head down, he grabbed a hold of her neck. He strangled her quickly hoping no one would notice the vehicle parked in the alleyway. After she was dead, he pushed her body into an upright position in the passenger seat and drove to his small landscape shed. There he hid her body under a tarp until he drove her to a recycling plant in Westbury. He stole a 55 gallon oil drum and stuffed the body inside. And that's when he realized that a 55 gallon drum was a perfect size for a body. So he remembered that for later. From there he drove back down to South Bronx where he found a small district filled with junkyards. He thought no one was around so he snuck into one of the yards and made his way to the East River where he dumped the body. But as soon as he got back into his car and tried to leave, a flash of blue and red lights came from around the corner. Two patrol officers pulled him over and asked what he was doing there late at night. 
They accused him of illegal dumping, but he convinced them that he was just there looking around the yards, collecting junk. Since they didn't have any evidence, they let him go with a warning, not realizing that he had just dumped a dead body that was floating downstream right beside them. Sometime later, he thought back on that night. The close call with police reminded Joel that he could get away with almost anything. He also remembered how much he liked the big 55-gallon oil drums for hiding bodies, so he bought a few more for his future victims. By this point, Joel had a system down. It was only a matter of how many victims he could lure into his car. Before long, he found Lorraine Orvieto on the day after Christmas, December 26, 1991. She was a 28-year-old who tried to control her bipolar mood swings with cocaine. She used to live a simple life at her home on Long Island where she had actually been a cheerleader in high school, but her mental health issues pushed her towards drug addiction. She didn't go home to spend the holidays with family. Instead, she worked the chilly streets in Bayshore. Joel picked her up and he parked his car near a schoolyard fence. By now, he didn't even have to think about how he would kill. He just followed the steps from before, like a robot. Just like his last victim, he strangled her while she began performing oral sex. After shoving her body to the side of the car, he dug through her purse and found a bottle of AZT. It was a medication used to treat people who are HIV positive. He took the pills, all of her jewelry, and her ID and kept them as trophies. He then took her body back to his landscaping shed and stuffed her into an oil drum. From there, he drove over to Brooklyn and threw her body into Coney Island Creek adding one more victim to the New York waterways. Lorraine's body wasn't found until July 11, 1992, almost seven months after her death, and her family didn't file a missing persons report until September, two months after she had already been found. Once again, Joel got away with murder, and barely anyone even noticed she had gone missing. Only a week after he killed Lorraine, Joel was quickly back on the hunt. He found his next victim, 39-year-old Mary Ann Holloman, a prostitute who also sewed personal G-strings for her friends who were strippers. He picked her up on January 2nd, 1992. And by this time, Joel felt that the murders had become completely automatic. There was nothing personal about them, as he killed her the exact same way as his last few victims. He even drove her to the same place he killed Yun Lee, and he dumped her into the Coney Island Creek. Her body wasn't discovered until about six months later, after an anonymous caller reported a body floating in the water, she was found only two days before Lorraine. Normally, this would suggest a serial killer was on the loose, but New York police saw nearly 2,000 murders a year, and prostitutes were one of their lowest priorities, and Joel took full advantage of it. By his ninth victim, he had forgotten names, dates, and places. He only remembered her tattoos and how she fought for her life. He had forgotten most of the details because by this point, he was brain dead just an automatic killing machine. He dismembered her and crammed her body parts into his last oil drum, and he dropped the barrel into the Newtown Creek in Brooklyn. The barrel was later spotted by a fisherman floating down the creek with one foot sticking out of the barrel on May 13, 1992. When they conducted her autopsy, the report showed that she had a lot of cocaine in her system. So police detectives believe that she was just a drug mule and had accidentally died from drug-filled condoms bursting in her stomach which wasn't true at all. In the end, the lies that police told only helped Joel murder more women. But after a slew of nine murders, Joel had other problems he needed to solve. While he was busy killing, his landscaping business had failed, and his landlord said he was $700 behind in rent. So he decided to go back to school in the spring of 1992, and he enrolled in a few classes at Farmingdale State College. He hoped that his education would help him find better work while he picked up a job at a local liquor store, but his devious behavior always got in the way. He cut classes and missed work to focus more on his truck, rent porn videos, or cruise the streets looking for his next victim. Although he failed at his career, one thing he excelled at was the field of killing. On the weekend of Mother's Day 1992, Joel skipped work and headed down to First Avenue where he picked up a 25-year-old crack addict, Iris Sanchez. He picked her up in the middle of the day and drove her down to a Manhattan housing project. According to Joel, it was down by where Macy's had their 4th of July fireworks. And when no one was around, like clockwork, he strangled her during sex 
and he drove her body down to an illegal dump site. He dragged her body out of the car, found an old rotting mattress where he wedged her body underneath it, and this would be her burial for over a year. Looking back, he used to be so careful about how he disposed of bodies, but now he knew that even if the police discovered the bodies, they couldn't catch him. All he had to do was store the bodies in a junkyard or a creek, and police would write it off as an overdose and move on. And by the time they would find her body, decomposition would already be in full effect, making the identification process even harder. During the spring of 1992, Joel was a full-blown killing machine. His moves were predictable and his killings were automatic. Most of all, he felt unstoppable. On May 25, 1992, Memorial Day, Joel headed down to Atlantic Avenue in Queens where he found Anna Lopez working the street. Anna was a 33-year-old mother of three, but she had fallen into cocaine addiction. His targets were always the same, a prostitute looking for drugs, and by now he knew how easy it was to murder them and get away with it. After picking her up, he circled around the neighborhood, and like a light switch, his rage activated. He strangled her until the light left her eyes. Without a care in the world, he drove over to I-84 where he pushed her body out of a car. The next day, a driver had pulled off to the side of the road to relieve himself. As he unzipped his pants, his eyes scanned the side of the road where he spotted Anne's body lying in the grass. She was missing one earring, which Joel had taken the other and stashed it away with his trophy collection. One after the next, his killing spree terrorized the sex workers in Manhattan, but no one was catching on, so he just kept doing it. Through the rest of 1992, he murdered three more women. One of the victims, Mary Williams, had a tragic life story. She had been homecoming queen and a college cheerleader in North Carolina. She was always well-liked and popular. She even married a pro football player in 1986, but they divorced soon after. Not knowing what to do, she tried her luck in New York City searching for an acting career. But after failing to get work, she fell into a life of drugs and ended up on the streets. Joel had been with her before and even thought they were dating at one point. Even though he felt remorse after the last time he killed someone he knew, he was desperate. His urges were non-stop and just like an addict, he needed his next fix. So on October 2nd, 1992, he took Mary out to buy drugs. And after she took a hit of heroin, she passed out in the car's passenger seat. He reached over to her throat as she dozed off. But just as he gripped her neck, she woke up kicking and punching. She fought back and she kicked the gear shift so hard that she broke it clean off. But even though she put up a fight, Joel managed to overpower her and strangled her to death. He then gathered up all of her credit cards and jewelry before dumping her in a Westchester suburb. And Anna was found a few months later on December 21st, 1992. And like many of the others, police couldn't identify her. So her body filled another nameless grave in New York. And just as Joel thought it was too easy to get away with murder, he finally met his match. Jenny Soto was his last victim of 1992, and she fought back so hard that Joel wondered if he should keep on killing. He met Jenny Soto at 11 p.m. on November 16, 1992. She was a 23-year-old drug addict who had tried rehab countless times, but always turned back to hard drugs. Joel picked her up near the Williamsburg Bridge in Lower Manhattan, and he figured that she would be an easy kill like the others. After she got into the car, Joel tried to strangle her after they had sex, and she turned out to be the toughest one to kill. She kicked and punched Joel, and as he got his hands around her neck, she took her fingernails and dug them into Joel's face and neck. She clawed him so hard that she broke all ten of her fingernails into his skin. Blood poured down his face and neck, but he fought through the pain. Blood poured into his eyes, but he still managed to overpower her. And in the end, Jenny became another one of Joel's victims, and he just rolled her body down into the Harlem River. She was found the next day and identified by her fingerprints, but police ended up looking into her ex-boyfriend as a murder suspect. And once again, Joel got away. But Jenny might have saved the lives of a few future victims, because after her fight, Joel took a 15-week break from killing the scratches on his face and neck looked horrific. Jagged claw marks covered his cheeks and the sides of his neck, and he didn't want to explain how he got his wounds, so he decided to lay low for several months, and he wouldn't strike again until the end of February the following year. 
and he had no idea his demise was right around the corner. By June of 1993, Joel's rampage would come to an end, but not without one last violent killing spree. His last victim was like many other women who ended up on the street. Her name was Tiffany Breschiani. When she was younger, she left Louisiana and traveled to New York, hoping she could find work as an actor or a dancer. But instead, she got hooked on heroin and found work in a strip club. Soon enough, she began working as a prostitute in the streets of New York, and her fate would end in the hands of Joel Rifkin. On June 24, 1993, Joel picked her up that night on Allen Street, and he drove her over to the New York Post parking lot. She was his fourth prostitute in two days, and he ended his bender with one more murder. Sometime around 5.30 a.m., he wrapped his fingers around his victim's throat one last time and strangled her to death. And from there, he drove her back to his mother's house in East Meadow. He still lived with his mother after all of these years, and apparently she had no idea what Joel was up to late at night. On his way home, he stopped at a few stores along the way to pick up rope and a tarp. He swaddled her corpse inside the tarp and stuffed her in the trunk of his mother's car. When he got home early the next morning, his mother demanded the car keys and said she needed to go shopping. So Joel gave her the keys, but he was starting to have a little panic attack. So he tried his best to keep his composure. Joel's mother ended up being gone for half an hour, but she came back and still had no idea that there was a corpse in her trunk. Joel then moved her body into the cluttered garage when the coast was clear and stuffed her in a wheelbarrow. For whatever reason, instead of getting rid of the body, he worked on his pickup truck for the next three days while the body wasted away in the garage. Some suspect he was so confident that he wouldn't get caught that there was no rush, or he didn't want to use his mother's car again, or maybe he was in a fugue state and didn't realize what he was doing. Either way, this was the beginning of the end for Joel. For three days, the summer heat made the corpse in his garage stink so he knew he had to get rid of the body soon. So he loaded the body into the back of his pickup truck and drove up to Melville's Republic Airport, about 15 miles north of his house. But on his way there, two state troopers noticed that he had no rear license plate on his truck, so they pulled him over. When they got up to his vehicle, Joel had a nervous look on his face, and when the troopers looked into the back of his truck bed, they saw the decomposing body of a woman loosely wrapped inside a tarp, and with no hesitation... They arrested Joel. And because of this traffic stop, Joel's killing spree had finally come to an end. After taking him back to the police station, homicide detectives interrogated Joel around 8.25 a.m. on June 28, 1993. The interrogation lasted eight hours, but the sessions were never recorded. What actually happened during the interrogation is still a mystery. Joel later complained that he had actually asked for a lawyer several times but he was always refused. The written transcript of the interrogation was reconstructed from the homicide detective's memory, and they claimed that they offered him a lawyer, but he refused. But by the end of the interrogation session, Joel had described and confessed to all 17 murders in detail, all without having a lawyer present. He wrote down all the names of the victims that he could remember, and even sketched maps of the areas where he dumped the bodies. And then he decided to play numbers game with me. And we asked him, like, how many have you done, a hundred or so? And he said, no, I did not do it a hundred times. And I came out with more than one less than 20. And going through different numbers, he said 17. He gave us a number 17. I think they were very surprised. Finally, just, you know, hand me a map and a couple of pens and, you know, I'll draw your pictures. So I did. When he told us stories about what had happened to each of his victims... He was completely cold and detached. He listed the victims by number, and he described their murders as events or incidents. During the confession, police officers raided Joel's mother's house in East Meadow. They refused to tell his mother what happened to him, saying that he was arrested for a traffic violation. But by 9 a.m., Joel's mother had seen what had happened to her son on the news, and she quickly called her lawyer, who referred her to a criminal attorney, Robert Sale. Realizing that Joel was being interrogated without a lawyer present, Robert called the state police at 3.30 p.m. and told them to stop questioning Joel until he arrived, but they kept on interrogating him for at least another hour, and by then, Joel had told them almost everything. I figured, you know, it was, there was no point in being evasive. I gave him the, you know, the whole thing. 
they were wearing me down. It was already getting into afternoon. I, you know, I'm tired. It's just didn't sleep the night before. They're, they're very good at what they do. They know how to bring it to the edge and then take you back and then bring you back to the edge again. His memory wasn't perfect, but he led police to where several of the bodies were stashed. After his confession, Joel was arraigned on July 15, 1993, and he pleaded not guilty. I'm not guilty. He ended up firing his lawyer and hired two new ones, trying to get rid of his first confession. And he claimed that police didn't have probable cause to search his truck in the first place. The assistant district attorney offered Joel a deal, 46 years to life for all 17 murders. But only if Joel pleaded guilty, Joel declined this offer. He hoped that he could claim insanity and be acquitted of all of his crimes. The insanity defense at that point loomed as the most viable course to pursue if we were going to in some way try to impress upon the jury that Joel truly didn't appreciate the consequences of uh, his actions. The dead, even though disposed of, were dates to Joel Rifkin. His mind never drew the connection between what was real, what was fantasy, what was life, what was death. What I have done can never be forgiven, but I ask you to believe me when I tell you that I will never understand the part of me that caused me to do these terrible things to your children. Not only will I go to my death reliving these horrors, but I will go there never knowing why you did them at all. You all think that I am nothing but a monster. And you are right. Part of me must be. But during his first trial, the assistant DA claimed that he was trying to abuse the concept of mental health. He knew when he killed Tiffany Bresciani that he was a serial killer. He knew it. He was studying it. He was reading about it. He had articles on Jeffrey Dahmer and Arthur Shawcross and others in his room. And he was doing it to satisfy his own sexual perversions. And after several psychologists and doctors testified, they agreed that Joel was sick, but not insane. He was pathological and he knew exactly what he was doing. In the end, he was found guilty of nine counts of second-degree murder and sentenced to 203 years to life in prison. You have been found to have knowingly committed the most heinous act one can commit against a fellow human being, the taking of a life. You, Joel Rifkin, are hereby sentenced to an indeterminate term of imprisonment with a minimum of 25 years and a maximum of your natural lifetime. The judge told spectators that if reincarnation was real, he wished Joel would spend his second life in prison. Mr. Rifkin, in case there is such a thing as reincarnation, I want to be sure that you spend your second life in prison also. If by some miracle he lives long enough, Joel would be eligible for parole in the year 2000. 197. Joel Rifkin spent his first few months of his sentence in Attica Correctional Facility, constantly bullied by fellow inmates. To him, it was high school all over again. His social awkwardness made it impossible for him to make friends, and the other inmates made him a punching bag. And after news stations began spreading the rumor that he was an AIDS carrier, the violence against him escalated. And after getting beaten up so many times, prison administrators eventually moved him into involuntary protective custody, where he spent 23 hours a day in his cell. In his free time, he read books and magazines, and he was taken to court by the families of his victims. He also picked up sketching and painting as hobbies, and in April 1998, he made the news again. His prison artwork went up for sale as part of a program to compensate victims. 50% of the sales went to New York's Crime Victims Board, and the other half went straight to his pockets. He had 20 paintings and sketches for sale. Many of them depicted wildlife and flowers, but one called Guardian's Failure showed a bare foot with the corner's toe tag around it and an angel weeping in the corner. After making headlines, Joel made the news again one year later. He used his popularity to propose a plan for a shelter that would house prostitutes. It would have also included drug treatment, counseling, medical care, and job training. He named it Ohola House, which was the Hebrew word for sanctuary. He told the media that he wanted to pay back his debt to society. Some people praised him for this idea, including his prosecutor, but others thought it was a terrible idea, especially because of his motivation room inside of the shelter. Joel wanted a place where the prostitutes would be scared straight. They'd be shown pictures of prostitutes who were murdered on the job. 
He hoped that the grotesque violence would turn them away from a life of sex work. In the end, the shelter was only a pipe dream, though, and many thought it was just a publicity stunt. Joel was kept in solitary confinement, and they eventually transferred him to the Clinton Correctional Facility 350 miles north of Manhattan. They call this the Siberia of New York prisons since it's isolated in the snowy Adirondack Mountains. Joel and more than 200 other inmates at the facility were not allowed into the general prison population. And after several years in prison, on December 14, 2001, Joel lost the appeal for his conviction. And at 63 years old, he is still kept there to this day. Joel Rifkin's murders were obviously heartless, and they were automatic. He killed women like it was just another part of his daily life, and his victims were the lowest priority for police. If it weren't for his lack of a license plate on his truck, Joel might have kept on killing for the rest of his natural life and actually gotten away with it. The honest answer is I don't know. I don't know if I was released if I'd ever uh, kill again. I might. While bodies floated down the city's rivers and creeks, police were crushed under the weight of 2,000 New York City murders a year along with their own incompetence. They lied and reported that many of the women died from a drug overdose rather than realizing that they had a serial killer on the loose. And as the bodies piled up, Joel Rifkin became one of the most notorious serial killers New York has ever seen. After 17 murders, he was only convicted of nine, and the body of Julie Blackbird has never been recovered. Her remains are still encased in cement, scattered along the bottom of the East River and the Brooklyn Barge Canal. And who knows how many other forgotten bodies line the bottom of New York's waterways. I gotta say throughout this whole episode that was very weird to be calling a serial killer Joel. I know. There's just some, yeah. Hearing my own name, it's just something weird and strange about it. Yeah, it's oh man. I know I'm even surprised there is a, was a serial killer named Joel, because I feel like Joel's a pretty unique name out there. Yeah, you, don't you don't hear a lot of Joel. Yeah, you don't really meet too many Joels out there. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I mean, it, there's just there's so many similarities between Joel Rifkin and other serial killers out there, like Willie Pickton. Definitely. I mean, always seemingly targeting those that society and police, especially, just don't seem to care about. Yeah, and I see a lot of similarity in their upbringing with how they were the socially awkward and shy and just kind of connect right. with people, and especially women too. Like they just yeah. don't have that ability to create a healthy natural relationship right you know obviously in a lot of cases it has to do with trauma and things like that that happen in their their family life growing up and i think joel's father's suicide was a a big sort of turning point for him in his life and obviously sent him into depression and yeah he never really quite dug himself out of it so in order to sort of bring himself out of his depression he turned to killing as a way to provide him that excitement and sort of lifeline to his life and the absolute worst one you could choose right so why do you think police wrote off so many of the deaths as drug overdoses this is the hardest thing to really wrap your head around and especially looking at serial killer cases from the 80s you know 70s 80s 90s even it, it just seems like police were majorly incompetent in their investigation skills for one and obviously, the New York was going through a period of uh, a spike in murders. So I think it was rather than piling on more cases mm-hmm. to their caseload that was already probably pretty high, that it was just easier and more convenient for for them to just say, "Oh, well, you know, there was drugs found with with this victim or in the victim's body yeah. after the autopsies, you know, conducted that." it's easier to just close that case as a drug overdose right? as opposed to investigating the real reason behind their death, which yeah. wasn't, was obviously not the drug overdose and you know, they were strangled. So yeah, it seems they just lacked the proper resources in the police department to maybe they're understaffed or I was even thinking they didn't want to release that information out to the public because of mass hysteria, people losing their minds. Yeah. yeah I think that's a good point too, is like they don't want to create panic that mm-hmm. there's a serial killer on the list. They already have enough killing going on. Right. So. Right. The last thing they want to do is be like, yep. So we have a serial killer yeah. out there. Watch out, which would have been, but 
as much as that might create panic, it would also make people aware, right? especially sex workers at the time that had no idea that there's this, this predator out there that could be any guy uh-huh. that, that's coming up to them, you know, on the streets and at least would have made them aware that maybe they should be more careful or, or watch out. But I mean, it's just, I, I really think that if he hadn't gotten pulled over that day in his truck, which I'm like, dude, you spent all this time fixing up your truck. You didn't even bother to look to see if you had a license plate on the right. back. Like, I mean, thank God that he was stupid enough to, to yeah, transport a body with no license plate. And, you know, the state police pulled him over. Yeah. But I, I think, honestly, if he had put that license, you know, he had never been pulled over that day that he probably wouldn't have went on and yeah. maybe murdered another 20, 30 women or even more. I mean, who knows? It could The body count could have gotten extremely high because mm-hmm. it seemed like there was just no action being taken by police yeah, at all like they right. just were literally because he was picking uh you know women that were sex workers that were also had you know addiction problems yeah f- to kill that that could have just went on forever potentially uh-huh yeah he definitely got overconfident and then towards the end just got careless and yeah I mean, we've seen that with other serial killers too. Is that's their downfall? Is they just got careless. They make they get they get too cocky and confident. They yeah, think that they're smarter than police, and they and then, make one stupid mistake. And then I think in the back of his mind, he was thinking, "Well, once I get caught, then I'm just going to tell them everything, so I get credit for for everything that I've done." Yeah, I, as opposed to just going to prison for one murder. For an example, they can convict him on. He wants for his ego. To, oh to yeah claim them all totally serial killers become this monster and with that they're this evil ego mm-hmm. takes shape and just grows over time and they feel powerful yeah. because for the first time in their life killing has given them this sense of power and authority that they never had before i mean being bullied and all these things eats away at you over time mm-hmm. and so to feel like you know i had power over these women and you know i i basically took their lives and yeah ultimately were their fate that it's just there's something about it that is addicting mm-hmm. and they just he just wants more and more of it and you see that with almost every single serial killer yeah that the more that they do the more cocky and egotistical they get and thinking that they're never going to get caught i mean just like ted bundy just like willie Pickton. i mean yeah he just and, and i think i think also it's just police at the time i mean we we know we know this happened in with lapd and in new york especially Mm -hmm. the big cities is that there is a total uh you know like bias against sex workers and just and just people minority groups basically yeah they just seemed like they looked at them like low lives and that they didn't matter almost like they're trash and they're but the city was better off not having them there so yeah it's just just rather than yeah and rather than doing anything about it they're just like oh you know write it off as a drug overdose yeah. death and and move on right i think ultimately joel got uh the punishment he deserved i mean 203 years he's never going to get out of prison um he's going to die in prison and it sounds like it's been a pretty rough time for him in there good yeah, yeah seriously i mean honestly i'm like just why, why keep him in i mean i it's it's always a debate is it worse for him to be in solitary confinement 23 hours a day in a cell or is it worse to be in general pop population uh yeah tough question just really depends i think both are torture really i think i think honestly when you think more about it solitary confinement i don't know though some some people like that though yeah and don't mind being alone and he's making artwork Mm -hmm. and just like he's you're you're i think eventually in solitary confinement you're able to deal with it like you get so used to it that you're able to deal with it and they give you stuff to do yeah and i feel like he was already comfortable just being by himself because he couldn't fit in with his peers so he probably felt more comfortable in there than general popular i know why not keep him in general population where you know he can just he can have a rough day every day right and honestly probably would end up being killed in general population i could see that i mean yeah but i i just found it like whack that he was selling his artwork and then donating that money. Yeah, the for, fact that they're letting him do that, I'm like, like, what? It's just, it's, I don't think as, as a serial killer, I don't think you get a chance to redeem yourself. No. The fact that they're letting him sell his artwork and trying to like, you know, he's he has this whole 
message of like, oh, I need to repay society, blah, yeah. blah, blah. I think it's just like, sorry, dude, that that sailed yeah. a long time ago. Like it's that too late for that. Like when you were free, you had the opportunity to do that. And yeah. why didn't you? And he even realized it multiple times. I mean, he had two two moments of remorse where he felt bad about what he had done. And it, that should have been the point where he stopped yeah changed his way turn himself in and then and then to it but instead he just kept on going and that's yeah. the thing is it's like of course he's going to be remorseful and want to help repay society from prison where he has no other choice yeah uh you know he really can't do anything mm -hmm. and that's what prison's trying to do right rehabilitate prisoners which yeah. we know it doesn't really do no, that no. so i think it's and the fact that he's still able to profit from it is just ridiculous yeah. like the guy should the guy should be you know, eating mm -hmm. scraps yeah. for food and have literally no commissary. Like the fact that he's making money off his artwork in prison while donating it is just silly to me. It is. And honestly, a slap in the victim's family's Absolutely. faces. Absolutely. And, and I hope that his the victim's families continue to take take his ass to, to court. Yeah. And take the rest of that money that he has and that he's making. And it seems like the solitary confinement or the prison he's in isn't necessarily a maximum security unit because if they're giving him resources to use his imagination and creativity, yeah, you know, I know there's, uh, I think the Colorado maximum yeah. security prison. In Canyon City. They just give him a concrete cell and nothing to do. I mean, you're lucky to maybe get a TV, but literally nothing to do. And uh, that's what he deserves. Right, right. And that's why people lose their minds in solitaries. Exactly. When you don't have anything to do yeah. and you're just staring at walls right. all day. That's, that's punishment, though. Exactly. That's punishment. That, not... That's definitely what, at the least, he deserves. Yeah, absolutely. But ultimately... These stories are not just about the killer themselves. This is about the victims as well. I mean, these were all women, young women who, you know, fall, had fallen on hard times and hard situations. Many of them who just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time when Joel found them. And these victims had families and loved ones and they were, you know, daughters of, you know, fathers and mothers out there. So as always, I just want to end this episode by you know, paying my respects to them and we'll end our episode there with a little tribute to the victims. But that is it for today's episode. I'll see you guys next time. Mm -hmm.